Last week, I'm not going to rehash what we talked about, but we kicked off a series that we're going to spend all the way to December on called Relationships Reimagined. Last week, we said all of, all of reality, all of your life at least, is about relationships. Um, your best and brightest dreams are relational dreams. Your worst nightmares are relational nightmares and everything in between. And we said that, thankfully, that could be a scary thought. If everything's about relationships and my relationships aren't great, whoa. Thankfully, God is a God who his primary agenda is in reconciling us to himself and us to one another. And we get a better glimpse of that tonight. So here's what we're going to talk about tonight. Here's kind of the question um, that I wanted to start out asking, and then we'll read the passage. If we're going to spend a semester talking about relationships, it raises a very important question. And it's this. Who are you going to trust to tell you what a relationship is? what it should be, what it could be. Uh, probably by this point, you've had parents nagging you to death. Don't hang out with those people, or date this girl, or dump that guy. Uh, parents telling you the way relationships are supposed to be, or the way that they wish yours looked like. But maybe if your parents are still together, you're at the age now where you're beginning to see maybe mom and dad don't have it all figured out when it comes to relationships. So it makes you a little bit more suspicious of their counsel. Okay, so maybe you turn to, like, pop psychology. I was talking with a friend today, and a, this fascinating article came out last week in the New York Times. Groundbreaking. Did you know that 60% of landmark psychological studies in the top three psychological journals in America cannot be replicated or reproduced? It's in the New York Times last week. That means 60% of the psychological study and research that we as a culture are basing our ideas about who people are and how they function is invalid. can't be reproduced. That's the hallmark of science. If you can't reproduce it, it's not true. Um, and so 60% of that, and so you say, okay, no parents, no psychology. What about books, relationship books? It's on your Kindle, your bookshelf at home is full of it, or you want it to be full of it. As of this morning, Amazon lists 564,105 books on relationship which one are you going to true, uh, choose as the true one? That's a lot of reading, and you already are stressed out in it's week two. There's a ton of other places. We don't have to go through all of them, but maybe your own gut, just your instincts, your feelings, that's what tells you what a relationship is supposed to be or should be. Maybe your friends. When Anna and I were dating, there was no shortage of people willing to advise us about what, how we should date or what it's supposed to be like or what red flags are or how do you know how do you know when you know that this is the person? Uh, we just, we were like, thank you everybody, but like, keep your opinions to yourself for a little bit. So here's the point. If we suspect all of those other places, maybe not, um, maybe not just universally true to kind of take advice on what a relationship should be and what it looks like. We're in a pretty confusing place. Where are you going to start? Um... Here's where we're going to start, and I'll explain why in the next few minutes. We're going to start with the living, personal God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I want to persuade you why in a few minutes, but first, let's just say we'll start there. And why don't you stand up, we'll read this passage, and then we'll, I'll get busy. This is from Genesis chapter 1. This is not news to any of you. Uh, no matter your familiarity with Christianity. We're picking up kind of mid-story. Then God said, 
Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish, the birds, the heavens, every living thing on the earth. Uh, This is chapter 2 now. We're skipping ahead. Chapter 2 is not a second account of creation. If Genesis chapter 1 is kind of the wide-angle lens view of creation, now God's going to zoom in to the crown jewel of creation, which is you. So he gets a little bit more specific. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. So I will make for him a helper fit for him. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before we were, you were. Before anything existed, there was you. Never been a time when you have not been. And so we are the small ones, the weak ones, the confused ones, the helpless ones. And you are the eternal one, the powerful one the all-knowing one, the gracious one. You are a perfect match for the people we are and the people that we have fallen short of being. So tonight, for your own joy, would you come? Would you show us yourself? We ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks. You can take a seat. So I want you to imagine something in your mind's eye. Pretend that there is a wall in front of me that's keeping you from being able to see Ben. And this wall goes from about right here to about the same place over there. But there's enough of a gap on the end where you can catch a fuzzy, faint reflection of me in in these windows. If there's a wall right in front of you, you can't see me directly, but you can catch this fuzzy little image, a faint glimmer of me through the windows. Would you tell someone, man, I know Ben. I could describe exactly what he's like. I get him. I know why. I, I know what makes him tick. I know him. You wouldn't tell that to your friends. Would you be able to describe me at all? Yeah, right? Just from the faint, fuzzy glimmer, you can tell that I'm a good looking guy, that I'm a little bit tallish. You can tell that I'm white. You can tell that I, I use my hands a lot. You can tell that kind of stuff. But you can't tell from this faint, fuzzy little glimmer a reflection. Anything else about me, what makes me tick, what I'm about, uh, my identity, or anything like that. I think we make this mistake with relationships. Instead of Ben being behind a wall that you can't see through, this big thing called relationships is behind a wall that you and I can't see through, but we all pick up little reflections out of the window. We're able to kind of see around it and pick up a little fuzzy, faint, out-of-focus image or idea about what relationships are, what they're supposed to be, what they could be. Um, but sometimes we settle for those faint, fuzzy little images thinking, I know, how, I know how to do relationships. I know how to relate to people. I'm an expert in this. If you've ever dated someone, you've learned you're not an expert in this, or had a roommate, or had a parent, which is everybody. 
uh, we begin to realize, okay, maybe I'm not the expert in relationships that I thought I was. So here's what the passage that I just read is doing. It's the living, personal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, busting through that wall and saying, do you want to know what a relationship is? Here I am. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, a trinity, yet one God. Incredible diversity, incredible unity, neither of which eclipses the other. So if you ask the God of the Bible, what is a relationship? What could it be? What should it be? He doesn't lecture you. Or he doesn't do what psychology or our gut or our friends or our culture does, which is basically spend our lives studying faint, fuzzy reflections and trying to draw expert conclusions from that. He busts through the wall, coming to you and saying, touch me, see me, hear me, feel me. I am God, and I am three persons in one. And so he tears down those walls. And so the first thing you've got to ask yourself is, do you settle for the faint, out-of-focus uh, glimmers and reflections and think that I know how to do relationships? Or are you willing to entertain the possibility that perhaps you need God to break through the walls to show himself to you to help you reimagine what seems like the simplest thing in the world, how to relate to God and how to relate to other people? And so if we want to know anything about relationships, we can't just start talking about dating. We can't just start talking about roommates. We can't just start talking about parent issues and struggles or sex. You have to start the conversation in the person of God, not the idea of God, the living being, the person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if we look at him, what do we learn? What do we learn about relationships, about God, about ourselves? if we look at him the way he's introduced himself to us? If you're a note taker, the first thing is this. You were made in the image of this three-personed God. He says it multiple times all throughout this passage. You were cast in the mold of a three-person triune God. A God who calls himself us, we, our. Not a God who just says I. And so this is true. You were made in his image. And this is true. I would, I'm going to suggest this to you. Whether you're a believer in Jesus or not a believer, skeptical or, or any point on the spectrum of belief, this is true of you, the Bible says. For the same reason that Eli, my son, my little 11-month-old son, looks like me. If you've seen him, the guy looks like me. He's got my eyes, my chin, my face, chub, and he's got my metabolism, he's got, and his personality. That's why he loves you guys and is fun to be around. But Eli bears my image inescapably. And God forbid, if there comes a day where Eli is at odds with me, doesn't want to be around me, runs away from home, he can say all he wants. I don't bear Ben's image. But if you saw him, you would see you look just like your father. If somebody who has eyes to see clearly saw you, they would say, you just like God. That's what I'm talking about here, that we bear the image of a triune God. We inescapably bear his image. He says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let us make man after our image. And so, if the God who made you 
I realize I'm presuming stuff. I realize I'm, I'm presupposing the Bible is true here. That's okay. You can push back later. If the Bible is telling you the truth, it says a relational creator created you in his image. This isn't rocket science, folks. What does this mean? This means that if a relational creator made you in his image, you are inescapably, by design, a relational creature. Period. It's not that some of us are extroverts, some of us are introverts. Everybody who has ever had a heartbeat, who's ever lived, is a relational creature because we are made in the image of a relational creator. Now, you're thinking, this is not very novel or astonishing. Ben's just spent five minutes trying to prove to us that people like hanging out with other people. That's nothing too, like, mind-blowing with that right now. And you're right. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to believe the Bible's true to believe that human beings are relational creatures. You can listen to any of those little studies I cited earlier, and they'll tell you the same thing. But as soon as we dig down deeper into this word relationship or relational, then we part company with everybody else. The Bible parts company with any other religious system or religious thought, with any other ideology. Christianity moves out to the moves out separate and alone and distinct from all the others. And here's why. What does it mean that God has been, is now, and forever will be in a relationship with Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What is what does a Trinitarian relationship mean? I know I'm using big words, but y'all are following me. What does it mean that he's been in a relationship with himself uh, forever? Um, This is what it means. Did you hear what Brittany read earlier from John 17? It's called the high priestly prayer. It's some of Jesus' very last recorded words. And it's astonishing because here's what's happening. This will blow your mind if you think about it long enough. God allows you and me to be a fly on the wall. As God the Son speaks to, pleads with, prays to, adores God the Father. You, this is the ultimate insider. This is the ultimate leak of information. That you and I now know, we have a recording in a sense of what it sounds like when Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this three-person God relates to himself. Here's what he says, just by way of reminder and refresher. Jesus is praying before he's about to be arrested before he's about to be crucified, he says, Father, and he's, when he says they, he means you, those who will believe one day, which is us. He says, Father, may they all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. Would they also be in us so that the world might believe that you have sent me? Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one Even, Father, as we are one. I am in them and you are in me that that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. Hang on to your seat. That he loved you the way the Father loves Jesus. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am. I want them to be with me. I want them to see my glory that you have given me, Father, because you loved me before the foundations of the world. Do you ever think something was going on before Let There Be Light? Or whatever narrative you believe is the true account of where the world came from. Did you ever think about what happened before something happened? Jesus is talking about this. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know 
you. And these know you that you have sent to me. And I will continue to make you known to them so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I may be in them. Here's what he just said. Jesus just said, there has never, ever, ever been a time, even before time existed, there's never been a moment where God has been bored, where God has been unoccupied, kind of twirling his thumbs, waiting for some action. There's never been a time where he has been lonely. There has never been a time where God uttered the words, I need something. This is a picture of a God who is bursting with satisfaction in this relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is not a God who has unmet emotional needs or a people-sized hole in his heart, so he needs to make us to fill that void. This is not a God who is bored. This is not a God who just decided to kind of throw out some light and some creation one day because he kind of was getting sick of the scenery before then. This is a God from eternity past and a God who will never cease doing these things furiously, relentlessly, energetically loving himself, serving one another, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, delighting each of them in the other, enjoying each of them, giving to one another, living in fullness with one another. So much so that Jesus says a word you probably don't ever use in your conversation with your friends. He said, Father, I glory in you. Do you know what it means to glory in someone? Two weeks ago, 20 of you, uh, people who kind of wanted to step up last spring and say, I want to serve in RUF. I want to be a part of kind of the forefront of this ministry as we, as we seek to kind of get beneath people and serve them and serve this campus. 20 of us went up to Cloudcroft and, uh, to pray for the semester to get things ready to plan. Uh, and about midnight on the first night, um, I'm playing cards, we're singing songs, and I'm, I'm kind of just sitting back and I'm taking this all in. Um, and over my left corner is like Valeria, Alyssa, Casey playing a hilarious game of Egyptian rat screw, and they're like uncontainable laughter. Morgan and Mark and Chris are like jamming in the middle, just like human jukeboxes. Whatever songs we scream out, they start playing, and everybody joins in. Like Savannah and Christy and Deborah on the couch, catching up, talking, enjoying each other. And I'm sitting there thinking, I love these people. Like, I love these people. I love their personalities. I love how much vibrance and energy and light comes into a room when they're here. I stayed about an hour after once they all left the next day, and it was depressing. So I left and came back home. (laughs) That's what it means to glory in another person. It's to deeply, with all of your being, delight in a person. I do this from time to time with Anna. When Anna comes to mind... And I just, these passing thoughts, I st- they stick with me. Lord, thank you for her. Like, thank you for her sacrificial motherly spirit. Thank you that she came, she just came prepared to be the most amazing mother to Eli. Thank you for her personality. Thank you for the joy and the life that she brings into my life. I glory in her. Did you know that your maker May you to glory in him? Did you know that your maker designed you to glory in other people? 
That is why you have a heartbeat. Do you believe me? If you don't and you're familiar with the Bible, didn't Jesus say, how do we sum up all of the law, which is basically God's desire for what flourishing looks like? How do you sum up all of the law? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your strength, all of your mind, all of your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Glorying in another person the way the Father glories in the Son, the Son glories in the Father, the Father glories in the Spirit, the Spirit glories in the Son of the Father. This incredible volcanic eruption of unbelievable, unimaginable delight and relationship and love. That is the God who made you. And he said he made you in that image. Whoa. Big implications from this we look at in just a second. There's a guy named Cornelius Plantinga. He sounds like he knows what he's talking about, so let's just believe this quote. (laughs) Cornelius Plantinga says this. He says, at the center of the universe, God is the center of all reality if you believe what the Bible says. At the center of the universe, self-giving love is the dynamic currency of God. That's God's currency. That's That's what's moving him. The persons within God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, exalt and commune with each other. They defer and and submit to one another without any competition or tug of war. They lovingly, they love to defer and submit to each other. Each divine person harbors in his heart or the center of his being the other people in the Trinity. In a constant movement of overture and music, each person envelops and encircles the other. C.S. Lewis uses language that's a little bit more understandable. C.S. Lewis calls this interaction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit the dance of God. He describes it this way. God is not an impersonal thing. God is not an impersonal thing, uh, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a kind of drama. Almost, if you will not think me irreverent, he's a kind of dance. And the pattern of this three-personal life is the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. Did you hear that last part? God's love for himself, this relationship within himself, is the spurting fountain that's just kind of welling up in the center of all reality. Which means this. God didn't create anything because he was bored or lonely or needed people to uh, give him attention He created you to be kind of like the bowl that catches the overflow of this inner Trinitarian volcanic love. You want to know why God said, let us create man in our image? He didn't need you. He didn't need me. He didn't need anything. He didn't need to prove anything. He is supreme. He has no competitor. He created that there would be creatures who can perceive and enjoy and know him and join in the dance. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit now brimming over to splatter and spill and flood over people who bear his image. Okay, quick pulse check. Uh, Does your estimation of how incredibly important relationships are, is it a little bit higher than it was 10 minutes ago? This is how you were made. God says, God wants you to know this is how I made you. 
to know this fellowship. And so, if this is the kind of relationship you and I were made for, a self-giving, a face-to-face nakedness, meaning vulnerability, I know you, you know me, there's no hiding. This self-giving, this self-submitting, this life-overflowing, intimate, personal relationship. That if this is the way we were made, what have we settled for? And what is getting in the way of us being able to reach this seemingly impossible, unthinkable kind of relationship? We get into that a little bit next week when we talk about the fall, what broke the Bible's account of why relationships are so hard. But the question still stands now, what have we settled for? What glimmers and faint images have we looked at and said, yep, that's it, that's just what a relationship is. And we settle for the lowest bar possible. Our relationships aren't personal. We talk about the weather, we talk about grades, we talk about engineering program, but we don't know one another. We hide from each other. We compete with each other. What have we settled for? We avoid each other. What have we settled for? We retreat to the comfort of our own rooms or homes, and yet even there we feel lonely, which is the second and third point, which are together and very brief because they flow out of the first. If we are relational creatures, being alone or aloneness is a bad thing. I didn't say singleness is a bad thing. Uh, This is bigger than husband-wife marriage stuff. Um, And I didn't say that loneliness in and of itself is a bad thing. I said aloneness is a bad thing. I'm not making this up. God says it, verse 18. It is not good that the man should be alone. I came across a story um, through Anna a few days ago. It's the story of Marie Bowman in New York City. Did you hear about it? It's from the New York Post. As her world shrank, Mary Bowman grew. With every loss, her son, her mother, her grandmother, the Harlem woman gained weight, becoming so large she stopped being able to walk or even move her own legs. But it wasn't until Friday when Bowman felt ill enough to call 911 that she realized just how bad things had become. She was unable to make it out of her own front door. So in order to get Bowman to the hospital for treatment, the FDNY had to use a crane to lift the 910-pound woman through the window of her second-floor apartment. When emergency responders took Bowman to St. Luke's Hospital on Friday, it was the first time she had been outside her apartment in nearly a year. She wouldn't draw a connection between her weight and the tragedies in her life, But through tears, she described the deaths of her beloved adopted son, her mother, and her grandmother. Marie said this, Every person I ever tried to get close to slipped through my fingers. Aloneness is bad. For the same reason, a fish not being in the water is bad. Fish were designed by their maker to thrive in water. They die when they're not in water. Human beings were designed by our maker to thrive in relationship. And we die when we're not in those relationships. You could add a whole litany of stuff on top of this. Lone wolf gunman, every time these shootings happen, is the same person. 
They're completely isolated, disconnected from everybody. They live alone. They think alone. And all they do is get worse and worse, spiraling out of control. And so the first time they enter back into relationship is with a gun. Solitary confinement drives people literally insane. Your parents are dealing with empty nest syndrome, which is a tragedy and a trauma for people who've had kids around for 18 years, and now they don't. Aloneness is bad if you were created to be relational. Closer to home, let me ask you these questions and then we wrap up. What happens when you're alone? What happens when you're by yourself and withdrawn or retreated from community and relationship? Is that the place it's easiest to overeat or to purge? Is that the place you masturbate? Is that the place, the pain of having no intimacy and no nakedness, not being known or knowing anybody, overwhelms you? And six hours later, you look up from your computer after a binge on porn. Does that happen when you're alone? Is when you're alone, when your depression creeps in and takes a hold on you? Is when you're alone, when you begin to suspect if any of your friends actually love you or could care less whether you disappear? If you were made by your maker to be a relational creature, aloneness is bad. And community is good. And so do we treat community with other people? Do we treat small groups? Do we treat conversation, getting lunch together, being a part of a community of people, a group of people? Do you treat that as icing on the cake to add it? You have a little bit of time in your schedule, I'll squeeze that in. It is impossible to think of community as something you squeeze into your life if you believe anything I've just said. That would be like a fish saying, if I could get 45 minutes, I'll go back to the water today. That fish is dying is what's happening, thinking it's healthy. What do you do with community? The last point is this, and it answers the question what we tend to do with community. And the, the, the point is this. Knowing whose image you bear, believing the stuff that I've just talked about will protect you from two things that all of us are tempted to do in our relationships. Number one is a self-protective posture in relationships. Relationships are scary. Um, relationships expose. They show vulnerability. They require weakness, and that scares you. And so in a self-protective instinct, you would rather be seen as strong or not seen at all, and so you retreat. This doesn't mean you're a hermit who lives in your dorm room all the time. This could mean you talk about the weather and your graduation all the time without ever revealing anything personal of yourself or asking to know another person intimately. Self-protective postures where relationships are dangerous and we run from them. The other thing that believing what I'm telling you and what God is telling you it doesn't just protect you from a self-protective posture in relationship. It also protects you from a parasitic posture in relationship. Self-protective and parasitic. Um, there's two mistakes we make with relationships. Uh, in parasitic relationships, where, where we mistake relationships for God. God is someone you have to have to survive. Not just your lungs to keep exchanging oxygen with your blood and your heart to beat. You have to have God. You exist in Him. 
Um, but if you mistake relationships for God and, and relationships take on divine status, you have to have them. They have to be good. And so you place expectations and demands upon your friends that crush them. And they end up pushing you away. We call it neediness. We call it codependency or whatever. But they push you away and you're left with less of the very thing you need, think you need to survive. Parasitic life-sucking relationships where you mistake relationships for God himself. With the self-protective thing, we fail to remember that other people bear the image of God. It is a spiritual thing when you get lunch with another person. No matter what you talk about, it is a spiritual thing when you show up in a Bible study and begin to cross scripture with your life. And so my question to you is, all of us are somewhere along these tendencies of self-protection or parasitic relationships. Which one is more familiar to you? Which one it feels easier to get pulled to? Retreating from relationships, being cynical, man, drama, I can't deal with the drama. What would it look like for you to take a second look at people and believe what your God says is absolutely true of them, that they bear his image, that they were made to glory in him and in you? Would that not begin to draw you back towards other people in community? And for the others who feel parasitic or, or codependent or I have to have, I have to have these friends. Do you believe what God says in this passage when he says he took the man from dust? Other people are not God. Your friendships are not God. We are people who are made of dust. We are extraordinary but also very ordinary people. And you cannot survive on a diet of just people. You were made for God, not men of dust. You were made... For the man of the spirit. And so, where does all of this leave us if we tie everything together at the end here? This is how we summarize it. God revealed himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, after the world had gone to hell in a handbasket. Genesis isn't surveillance video that was being recorded in real time. This is likely hundreds or thousands of years, um, actually probably millions of years after this stuff happened, that Genesis is finally being revealed by God and recorded. Which means, why is God telling a room full of broken people who have broken relationships, retreat from relationship, or suck other people dry? Why is he telling you, you were made to glory in me and other people? Is he just rubbing your face in it like, hey, look at my relationship. Like those people who are dating and they're like, my girlfriend's awesome. And you're like, shut up. Like... (laughs) Tell me about some bad stuff so I feel better or something. But is God doing that to you? No. He is showing you who you were made to be, who you were made for, what you were made to be. And like I said earlier, this is the God who literally moved heaven and earth, not just to give you heaven or salvation. God moved heaven and earth to give you your humanity back. To make you normal again. To make you a human being again. Who begins more and more to learn how to glory in God and glory in other people. Only he can do it so we should finish with prayer. Jesus we thank you that you are the one who left the dance. As it were. To come and ask us to dance. You are the one who did not count equality with God something to cling to and grasp, but you made yourself nothing. You came to us and you gave us your hand and you said, join us. As we 
revolve around each other. Join us as we delight in glory in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you for that. My words are impotent apart from you making them something. So would you do that tonight for your own sake? We ask in your name. Amen.